We first met Lieutenant Colonel Jason Harris on episode 100 of Pick Up the Six podcast. He joined us then to talk about his new book called Aiming Higher, A Journey Through Military Aviation Leadership. Jason and a small group of his peers worked together to write that book, and we wanted to get to know him a little bit more. Jason has an incredible story that starts in the inner city of Oakland and includes learning from the Tuskegee Airmen on his journey to become an Air Force combat pilot. I'm going to level with you. This is a hell of a conversation with a hell of a dude, so let's get into it. Jason, man, it is great to have you back. Welcome back. Hey, man, thanks. It's so good to be here with you, Brian. It's uh, just another great day to be alive, brother. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we're rocking this on a, it's a Tuesday morning as we record, it's 9.30 my time, 7.30 mountain time where you are. I've been up and at them since uh, 05 and uh, man, had a great workout with the fellows. We're doing some track training as we prepare for the Blue Ridge Relay, which is this mountain relay race, got a six man team. So we did a little speed work intervals this morning and the boys about left me for dead out there, but they made sure, <laughs> made sure I got back. All right. So that was good. So you're right. It is a beautiful day to be alive. And you're up and at them as well. Yeah, man. Uh, up and at it at uh, 0500 as well, man. You know, it's uh, it's crazy. Last night was, I don't know about you, Brian, but sometimes I have these like pro- productivity spurts. Yeah. You know, and there's different things that spawns it. And yesterday for me, the thing that spawned my productivity spurt was meeting with a new mastermind group. And it was just, it, it was, it was all in, man. And so literally yeah. it just kind of like kicked in some creative juices, reviewed my notes. And so I was up to a little bit after midnight last night and then I said, okay, I've got a 5.30 call while I'm working out this morning because I want to have a mentor coaching call with the guy. And But I said, can I sleep in? Yeah, but no, I got up at five o'clock and I felt awesome. Great to just get that day started, yeah. getting the endorphins flowing, man. And so, yeah, it's another absolutely great day to be alive, brother. The body knows too when you can front stack some of those days and then you can recover, right? Like, and it doesn't, so there doesn't, I, I'm not a big proponent. There's got to be this strict, like I got to get this amount this night, right? Like I can bank some of that. I can, I can bring it back down when I need to, but if you're feeling it in the groove on a day like today, you might as well harness that power and keep rocking. Yeah. Which is, well, it sounds like what you did. Man, I, I agree. You know, it, it's funny, right? Like everybody talks about this, uh, you know, the, the perfect amount of sleep and all that stuff. And, and on one hand, I believe that, right? Sure. On one hand, I believe our body knows how much sleep we need. And some of us, we do need to get more sleep, right? On the other side of that, um, you know, I've read the scientific stuff, right? You see different scientific pieces, but then on the other side of that conversation, I remember reading, um, what's the, um, uh, man, I can't remember his name right now. I just literally just dropped off the tip of my tongue, but um, Miracle Morning, Hal mm. Elrod, The Miracle Morning. And he talks about that exact thing that you're talking about, bro, where, where he talks about, look, I get it. Sometimes you're only going to get four or five hours of sleep, six hours of sleep, and maybe you're a seven or eight hour guy or gal. But the reality, what Hal Elrod talks about in his books, he says, look, man, if you want to do it, get up and do it. And if you tell the mind and you tell the body, this is what we're going to get after this morning, mm-hmm. it works. Yep. It doesn't mean you're not going to get tired later, Yep. but you can push through it, man. And so I, at, you know, in my forties realizing that I got to keep moving, I got to keep working out. I got to, I got to keep these old bones from getting too restful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Then I got to keep moving and I got to push through these challenging moments or push through those exciting moments where I stayed up because I had a productivity spurt but I still got to get up in the morning and get the day going, get it started with, with a workout and get my mind right, get my body right. And sometimes, you, like you said, you bank it, brother. You'll get yeah. back to it. And also, like, if you don't 
I think you have to put yourself in those scenarios, meaning last night you were up till midnight. You knew you were getting up at 05. Like you're making that conscious choice. That decision might be made for you later in a moment of high stress and low visibility where that sleep time might be taken away for something else. Are you prepared, right? Have you prepared yourself, sharpened the sword enough to when, when it's asked of you, when you're not volunteering to do it? Okay, cool. I've done this enough. I've experienced this enough times. I can operate with four hours of sleep. You've had to experience that in combat, right? Where you have to be ready to go. Oh, yeah. At a moment's notice. Like I said, we're sort of reverse engineering. We're Tarantinoing this episode today as we, as we sort of jump. No, in, right? but I love it, man. But you're, you're spot on, bro. Like that, that is the beauty of what you're talking about because so many people, they haven't done the prep work, mm. you know, and they, they look at somebody, you know, somebody who does adventure sports like you and the crew you run with somebody who's got in a combat like me, some of the other people that you've had on your podcast and they look at us and they go, Oh, you guys are, 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 um, you're just lucky or you're superhuman. No, 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 no. We're normal people, bro. Like literally <laughs> I get up just the same way as you, yeah. right? I put on my yeah. shoes one at a time, my, my pants one leg at a time, but I've trained mentally, physically, emotionally. And I've done some of the work that when the fit hits the shan, mm. I'm going to be ready to dig deep. I'm going to be ready to go deep so that I can go into the combat of life and win. But if you ain't out here working out, if you ain't working out in this combat of life, you ain't going to be ready to even fight. You ain't going to be ready to compete. You ain't going to be ready to win nothing. Yep. But yet you're going to be on the sidelines looking at me, looking at Brian, talking about, oh, y'all are so lucky. Nah, bro. <laughs> we just work hard. That's it. Yeah. My football coach in high school, Coach Dahl, rest in peace, used to say, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. The harder I work, it's not by coin. Right? Those, those two things are connected. Hard work and you could call it luck, whatever you want, but it's by putting the work in. And then last thing, because then we're going to talk about the last time we talked what you've been up to, you know, in F3, this organization I'm a big part of, believe so much in fitness, fellowship and faith. We talk about taking head knowledge and converting it to heart knowledge. So head knowledge is preparing, studying, learning. So then when you're cast into that moment and when I talk high stress, low vis. I'm not saying you got to go downrange like you did in the combat zone. High stress, low vis might be in your family life when things are stressful. Might be at work, right? Might be in the middle of a six-man, 208-mile relay race at three in the morning where it literally is low vis and high stress, Ooh. right? But because you've prepared and you've put it in your head and you've gone through it, then you put it on your heart and it becomes activity and you just get moving. Hey guys, more from our conversation with Jason, but first, this episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by Allbirds. I've been an Allbirds customer for years because their shoes look great, they're super comfortable, and they make shoes and clothes that are better for you and better for the planet by using revolutionary premium natural materials. As a runner, I'm also looking for a shoe that feels and fits great out on a run, and so I'm pumped to tell you about the Allbirds Tree Flyer. I have a pair and they are great. The Tree Flyer is lightweight weight, super springy, and wildly comfortable, making your running efforts of all shapes and sizes feel surprisingly effortless. They provide unbelievable cushion and comfort, so even your toughest runs are easier on your body. I noticed from step one when I put these on, they just felt great, and that's thanks to the Swift Foam Midsole. It's lightweight and big on cushion and energy return. I recommend these shoes because I wear these shoes. I have the orange ones. Plus, they have loads of other great stuff, too. And they're hooking you up with a free pair of Allbirds socks on your next order of 50 bucks or more. Just use the promo code PICKUPTHESOCKS. 
Pretty good, right? Pick up the socks at allbirds.com on your next order of 50 or more, and you're getting a free pair of socks from those guys. Lace up the tree flyer and get running today at allbirds.com. That's allbirds.com. Okay, let's get back to it with Jason Harris. So, man, the last time we talked was early May, right? For May, we released that episode, which coincidentally I thought was kind of cool. I didn't, I mean, I kind of realized at the time, but didn't make a big deal. It was episode 100 of our podcast where we had you and this group of awesome former military aviators and some still active, I think, uh, in this mastermind group. The new book was called Aiming Higher, A Journey Through Military Aviation Leadership. And so not so much a history book about military aviation, although I'm sure there's pieces woven through, but really a focus on leadership. And and when you take a small group like that, right, an influential group together in a mastermind, like, boy, we've got a lot of shared experiences. Uh, We've got a lot of leadership skills that have been poured into us that we ideally are pouring out into the next gen. And you guys came together to put that book together. So how's it been, man, since the last time we talked? Man, life has been amazing. You know, um, I continue to serve as a reservist, as an Air Force reservist, lieutenant colonel, pilot, squadron commander. Um, and, and for me, the book was, it was just, there was a process to getting that book done. But more than anything, Brian, for me, it was getting to get sharpened by these other amazing people. I mean, literally each one of them in their own right is a powerhouse. You've got Daniel Walker, who's at Harvard Law School. You know, right now as we're speaking, he's over in Rwanda doing some work over there on an internship. The guy's brilliant, got a big brain. You know, you've got Cujo. I mean, look, the guy's a weapons officer. And literally just to sit at the foot of a guy like him and what he's doing in business currently, what he did in his military career, it's it's mind-blowing because you ask people like that a question and they can give you a simple answer or they can give you an answer that will just have your brain going, doing, you know, uh, Olympic level flips, you know, then you got Elroy. I mean, gee whiz, like the guy, again, a, a consummate leader, mentor, coach, you got Casey Campbell, who's just, I mean, if there ever was a such thing as a badass, mm-hmm. it's her, right? Yep. I mean, everybody in this group that I was surrounded by were phenomenal. And the coolest part about it is that we didn't just write a book and just go, hey, here's a book that we want to put out there and get some ideas out there. We wrote a book where we poured our heart and soul in it. And we wrote a book that we actually were practicing as we were writing. And even today, we still are in a group chat. We still have phone calls with each other. We still connect with each other and support each other. You know, as a sitting squadron commander currently, there are issues that I deal with that other people aren't prepared to be able to help me with. Well, I can go to each one of them and go, hey, can you give me some perspective? Hey, how would you handle this? Hey, I had this happen. I had this happen. What do you think? What what am I missing here? How can I be a better leader? And how can I be fair, equitable? And how do I create an environment that is truly built on commitment, truly built on accountability, and truly built on trust? And so these individuals have been amazing support. They've offered amazing support, been an amazing support structure and they've been amazing friends on this journey of my my human condition, as well as on this journey of being a leader. That's incredible. I mean, you think about just having those moments to to look at your surroundings, and you know, you're cast into as a leader decision making processes, and, and as you know, as a squadron commander, you've got a lot of things that sort of lay at your feet. But it ultimately doesn't mean that you've got to be at the wooden desk by yourself right? Making the decision. I understand that that a decision point can be there, right? And your name is attached to it. 
but to lean in on all those resources and maybe even be willing to stay vulnerable enough to say, where are my blind spots, guys? What, what am Absolutely. I? Let me lay it out for you. What might I be missing? Well, from my perspective, it looks like, have you considered this? That's pretty cool. Yeah. You, you, you know what's amazing, Brian, is that I've got two words, or I've got one word, and I've got a statement of the year, right? So the one word is grateful. Man, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that cohort that we wrote the book with. I'm grateful that we were able to bring the book to fruition. You know, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my spouse, who's just amazing. I'm grateful for life. I'm grateful for all the things that are happening, being surrounded by amazing people. And then the statement that I basically have been living by, the mantra that I've been living by this year is leader. You earn that title every single day. You know, what I realized sitting in an actual titled leadership role is that many people are afraid of the role. They're afraid of making decisions and they operate out of fear, right? And as a leader, we have to be willing, ready, and prepared to make the decision. We have to make the tough calls. But like you just said, Brian, in making the tough calls as a leader, earning that title of leader every single day, we don't have to sit at that desk by ourselves. We can surround ourselves with amazing people that can help us. Now, I the buck stops here. I have to be willing to make that hard call and make the tough decision. But I have the ability to reach out and go, hey, Elroy, let me talk to you about this. Hey, KC, what are your thoughts about this? Hey, Cujo, what are your thoughts about this? Mm-hmm. Hey, Fuzz, what do you think I should do? Or how, how would you approach this scenario? And when you leverage the brilliance of the people that are around you in a mastermind, like our military mastermind organization, it allows you to be able to lead more authentic, more real, and it allows you to actually be more prepared and comfortable with making the tough calls and earning the title of leader every single day. I want to talk about the path that landed you in the Air Force, but what are some of the characteristics, right? You've you've had the ability to be around good leaders. And my guess is, based on stories, right, that just, just life. You've probably been around some that you learn lessons from some of the bad ones, too. So what are the characteristics of a strong leader that jump out for you? You know, I, I think for me, a strong leader, number one, they care, right? Like, We've heard the cliche things, you know, but but at the end of the day, Brian, I think one of the biggest things for a strong leader, I need to know that you care about me, mm-hmm. right? And it's not you care about me that you invite me to your house for dinner. It's not that you care about me that you make me your best friend. It is you care enough to want to know what's happening in my world and you care enough to want to uh, include me versus exclude me. You care enough to insulate me versus isolating me. That's the number one thing I'm looking for in a strong leader. And then beyond that, I want that leader to be willing to be vulnerable. Mm. I don't need you to be vulnerable to the point of crying or anything like that, right? Because of course, we think vulnerable, we think of crying, we think vulnerable, we think showing your weaknesses. It's not about that. But the the real leader, the true leader, the powerful leader that's earning that title every day, that leader is not afraid to say, hey, I don't know that. You know, As an officer, there's an enlisted person over here who actually is the expert on that. They're the senior NCO. They're the NCO. And that is what they specialize in. So I'm going to bring them to the table to have that conversation. As a commander, as the leader, as the officer, I don't need to speak for them. And I don't need to try to convince you, Brian, that I'm the smartest person in the room. Mm. The leader, in my opinion, the strong leader, they will put forward the strongest, smartest people in the room. They will allow them to speak. They will allow them to shine. That's what a strong leader does. They don't, their ego is not leading. 
their ego comes behind mm. everything else, right? They do have an ego because they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at without some sort of an ego. However, they understand how to let that ego play second fiddle. Mm. They don't allow that ego to be the obstacle, right? And so they, as a strong leader, they care, they're, they're vulnerable, and they also allow their people to shine. They don't try to be the smartest person in the room. And I think those are some very significant characteristics of a powerful, impactful leader that makes a difference. As a squadron commander, it is not your job to do the job of everyone associated with that squadron, right? You can't fix the airplane and fly it too. You, you just, you, you don't have the time Bing, bandwidth, or the skill set, right? But how important for you is it as a squadron commander to know what those jobs are and to be able to relate to everyone inside that specific unit? You know, I, that is, I love the way you gave that example, right? So um, one of my many roles that I play is I'm an airline pilot. And what I say as an airline pilot, and even as a military pilot, what I say, Brian, is that um, my job up front is to fly the airplane. Now, I'm not going to go to the back as, a, as an airline pilot. And I'm not going to try to do uh, the cabin crew's job, right? Um, I'm not going to belittle their job, but I also am not going to go back there and try to do their job, just the same as they're not going to come up to the front and do my job. Now, I have an awareness and an understanding of what their role is, mm -hmm. and then we all play our part. You know, and I, I remember this one time I, I had a situation when I was flying C-130s a long time ago. You know, and in C-130s, um, you basically got two pilots up front, navigator when I was flying E-models, and then a flight engineer behind us. And then in the back, you got one or two load masters. And I remember having the, you know, an understanding and appreciation to what you're asking is, is that my job as an aircraft commander is to lead, not to do everyone's job. And so I remember this one time, man, we came off the runway and when I went to raise the gear up or I had the co-pilot raise the gear up and all of a sudden we had this massive banging sound, right? It was like, like we, I had no idea what was going on. And in that moment, you're literally just coming off the runway. You're like, this could be catastrophic. How mm. am I going to solve this problem? And in that moment, I realized I reflected back on all my training and I said, okay, great. Copilot, I need you to do this. Uh, navigator, I need you to get on a call and start talking to command post, see if they got a maintenance person that can get on the, the, the radio with you. Hey, flight engineer, I need you to assess what you see, what you hear, what you feel. Talk to me. Hey, loadmaster, I need you to go ahead and start checking out the gear. Tell me what you see. Tell me what you, what you can hear, what you feel back there and lay eyes on the entire back end of the aircraft and everything that I'm unable to see because mm -hmm. I can't see the whole plane, right? And I happened to have, I was a young captain, man, brand new aircraft commander, 2005. And right on the bunk was an instructor pilot. I'm a young captain. He's a senior major, about to be lieutenant colonel. And he's just an extra set of eyes and an extra set of ears. And so I could have said, I got it. I know what I'm doing. I'm the yeah. one in charge. But instead I say, hey, extra pilot, I need you to do me a favor. Get in the dash one, start looking up gear malfunctions, start finding out if I am missing something. And in that moment, then we went around, we checked in with everybody. Is everybody got good to go? Does everybody know what their role is? And as long as everyone understands what their role is, then now we can bring that emergency situation mm. to a conclusion in a safe, efficient, effective manner. And we were able to do it that day. Not because I needed to know how to do everybody's job. What is that? Get out of the, get out of the front seat of the airplane and go to the back and go, go downstairs and go look at the gear? No. Right. Like I can't fly the airplane and look at my dash one and figure out what the problem is. And I think sometimes what happens, Brian, to your question is people will try to do everything 
And when you look at the proverbial example of flying an airplane, when you try to do everything and not your thing, that's when you crash and burn. Mm. And we see that in life as well, right? You've probably seen that on teams where someone thinks that they are the end all be all, they know it all, and they drive the team into the ground. We can't allow that to happen. As leaders, we have to understand what our role is and we allow and set other people up for success by helping them to understand how to play their role, how to play their position as well on that team. Remember what we said before about high stress, low vis? You were airborne as this was happening, right? Yeah. But because you had the head knowledge, right, you're able to react in those moments and you check your ego at the door where you can't solve every problem on your own, which is important. And something for you guys to think about as you're going through these moments, regardless of where it is. He was in an aircraft. Yours could be in the boardroom tomorrow. And you're able to install some of those principles. Dude, let's go back. Right. So end up in the Air Force. Tell me about that journey. How'd you get there? Yeah, man. So, um, you, you know, what I like to say, Brian, is that uh, I'm number two of my mother's six children, a product of three marriages, four fathers for her six children. Wow. I was born and raised in Oakland, California, uh, in the inner city streets of Oakland, California, the rough part. And that's my beginning, right? That's kind of my origin story. And, and, and my mom, she actually enlisted in the army at an older age to get her then three boys out of Oakland so that we didn't fall victim to all the things that were happening around us. So move from Oakland, go to Fort Hood, Texas, go um, you know all the way through high school there, Fort Hood, Texas. And then I end up applying to, to, to various schools. You know, my number one school choice was I, I wanted to go to Texas A&M so bad I could taste it, man. Like I went for Aggie for a day and I thought, man, that is where I want to be. And Texas A&M said, well, we don't think you're good enough, so we're not going to accept you. And I thought, man, I was kind of heartbroken. But I had applied to all the military service academies and I got accepted to every one of the military service academies prep schools. So I looked around, I says, okay, army, I've been there. I've lived that life as far as my family and seeing that. I don't want to carry my life on my back and sleep in the field. This is not my kind of idea of fun. Thought Navy, man, I can't drink that much water and I can't swim that good. <laughs> so we're going to pass that one. Coast Guard, well, I didn't want to fly airplanes because I didn't even know it was possible, but I thought flying helicopters would have been the coolest freaking thing ever. And then they're like, hey, you got to get on a boat for two years before you can fly a helicopter. I was like, nope, that one's off the question. Yeah, Again, we already, we already Navy checked exam. that. Yeah, we already said yeah that exactly. Right. right? <laughs> and then it was like Air Force. And, 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 you know, Brian, my mom would tell me growing up, my mom would say, son, if you're going to go in the military, go in as an officer. Mm-hmm. Son, if you're going to go in the military, go in the Air Force. Man. And literally here was in my lap the opportunity. So I went to the Air Force Academy prep school in 1996, graduated from there, barely, you know, struggled, fought my way through that place, had some leaders that cared, right? Some instructors that literally, they truly cared. They pulled me aside and they helped me to make it through that place. Then got into the Air Force Academy and I graduated in 2001, you know, and that, I I breeze over that in a few words, but that four-year period at the Air Force Academy, man, it was, it was one of the most challenging four years of my life and of my existence but I promise you that it has contributed. Like you said, that high stress, low viz, it has contributed to me being able to get through life the way I get through life now because of the four years that I endured mm. at that institution. And interestingly enough, as tough and as challenging as it was, I do it all over again because it was worth every bit of it, brother. Was so it that the, was, was it the academics, the, the, the rigor of the, the structure there? I mean, what made it all of the above? Yes. Uh, right. I mean, uh, life, culture, what made it a challenge? It was all of that, Brian. I mean, you know, your freshman year, it's like you're a fish out of water and you're trying to figure things out. 
And so with that, right, imagine taking 21 hour college, 21 hours of college level courses that are like next level courses. And then from the, from that, then when you get home from well, school hold on, in the first afternoon, semester. Yeah. 21 yeah. guys here. Remember, remember when you were yeah. taking 12 hour semesters, like 21 hour semesters. Yeah. Like easy 18, 21 hours. And then when you get done with the day, you come back. Right. And you know, the upperclassmen are like, Hey, meet us out in the hallway, be in your BDUs, boots, web belts, canteens, and your rifles. We're going to, and, and you might go on a three to five mile rifle run, bro. Mm. Right. So, and then after that, you got to come back and eat dinner together and then you got to be forced to study. Right. And so, so that was its own challenge freshman year, along with some other things. And then the academics were, you know, they were challenging. But again, for me, man, you know, there were people who were leaders. There were people who cared. And in the midst of struggling academically, in the midst of trying to figure out how do I fit in, in the midst of trying to figure out what my identity was, you know, um, all of these things, never having had been in that environment before, there were leaders that cared and helped me and that believed in my potential. And they, they found their own way to stoke the something that was inside of me and stoke that potential that they saw in me to allow me to keep pushing through. And then it was my friends, right? And it was it's, it's kind of like a ruck march, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And for me, that was what got me through, man. And so I didn't I didn't go to academy to fly airplanes. I went there because it was a quality free education that would set me up for success. Mm. Then I got introduced to original Tuskegee Airmen. I met pilots that looked like me. And as that happened, I realized, like, wait a minute, I could actually do this thing. And so I got a pilot slot, went to pilot training in Columbus, Mississippi, and, and I was able to go and fly C-130s, man. And that's kind of just the, the quick and dirty of how my origin story and how I got to where I'm at today. June 28, 1981, Brian R. Jodas born in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, so we've... <laughs> We've run around some of the same place. My dad did pilot training, flew uh, T-38s, T-37s, right, all over Columbus Air Force Base. You know, one of my favorite pictures of him, uh, he's still with us, uh, and he's the greatest leader that I've ever known, and obviously I'm biased. Going back to your point about squadron commanders is this was, he was either a squadron commander, he might have been a, he might have been a wing commander at the time. He's crouched under the airplane, he's an F-15, like with the munitions guy, and they're looking at you know, bombs and stuff off the side of the plane. And my, you know, you have to excuse my vernacular for not being hundred percent dialed in, but I'm like, there's the wing commander, squadron commander, whichever one it was doing that. Right. Remembering that humility of knowing the roles of everyone there. Let me go back to the exactly. Tuskegee Airmen guys. Right. Because it is right. As a black man growing up, you know, I, I don't know how many combat pilots that you got to see that did look like you until maybe you learned about those incredible warriors and heroes just to lean in a little bit how impactful was that and and it, were you like dude i got to get in an airplane now is, is did that kind it, of catalyst some of that it, it it did but it wasn't so instantaneous right and and so for me um you know there was there was an adjustment going to the air force academy to begin with right because no one in my family was an officer uh or at least no one that i could put my hands on and touch and no person was an officer right and so so that was its own space. And you're talking to people who they, they've lived with this their whole life. You know what I mean? And I'm a fish out of water. And, and there's this environment of trying to figure out, do I belong? Am I good enough? Can I compete? And then I had never seen a black pilot before. We had flown on airplanes quite a bit, but I'd never, of all the pilots that I'd seen in the cockpits of airplanes going back and forth across the country as a kid, I had never seen a pilot that looked like me. I'd never heard about the Tuskegee Airmen. 
So all of a sudden now I get to the Air Force Academy. My at my freshman year, my very first AOC or Air Officer Commanding was Captain Bob Willoughby. I'll never forget, man. I mean, it was life-changing. Captain Bob Willoughby was an RC-135 Cobra Ball pilot. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. How did I get so lucky? Right? There's it, At the time, there were only two black cadets per squadron. Hmm. Or in, in, in each class, two cadets per class per squadron, right? And I'm the one, and I, I think I think Captain Willoughby might have been one of less than ten, possibly less than five black pilots on the entire Air Force Academy installation. And he's my air officer commanding, and I get to actually talk to this guy. He was a normal guy, but it made a difference. And then somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, there's these guys called the Tuskegee Airmen. Do you want to learn about them?" I'm like, "Well, yeah. Tell me more." And and Brian, I didn't realize at the time when I first met them, how big of a deal these guys were, right? I, like, I didn't realize how badass these guys were. Right. I'm just excited that these guys are legends, but I didn't realize that, like, they're, like, they are living legends. Like, they are larger than life legends. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. But I got to sit at the feet of some of these, some of these Tuskegee Airmen. And the more they talked about what they did, it wasn't so much as, as what it was being a pilot, but it was about what they overcame. For me, that drew me in. Now, there was a side of the commercial aviation scene that I got to get exposed to by way of conferences that I would attend. And I was like, wait, so I can follow in these guys' footsteps as a military aviator, and then I can have the potential to be a commercial aviator like these other people over here, and I can make a living that no one in my family has ever experienced. I was like, I think I want to try that. And oh, by the way, I get to lead. And oh, by the way, as we know, a good portion of leaders in the Air Force our pilots. I thought, man, this is this is right in line with what I think I should be doing. And I started leaning in and I decided, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to do it. And it was a struggle, bro. I had no idea about flying. When I went to pilot training in Columbus, Mississippi, bro, that was like, that was a tough year, man. It was like, imagine getting your, your, your undergrad, your master's and your PhD all in one year. And it's coming at you, you know, five miles a minute, bro. Mm-hmm. Like five, six miles a minute. That's what pilot training was like, literally. Um, but I said, if these guys could do it, then I got to at least put in the effort and try these guys got crushed. These guys, the, the things that happened to them, the stories that they told me personally, that other people have never heard of, Yeah. but then the stories that the American public actually knows about, if they've gone through all of that, it pales in comparison to what I'm going to, through. So this is what I'm going through is, is, is nothing. And so for me, man, every day I just fought. I said, I'm going I'm to do it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in the legacy and honor these people for what they've done going before me. And I continue to work towards being able to honor their history, their legacy, and the lineage of those Tuskegee Airmen whose shoulders I stand upon today, man. Incredible. All right. So you get out of the Academy 01. Uh, it is drastically a different world that we live in, right? Everybody remembers the fateful day in 2001 where the world for us as Americans and really most of the globe changed forever. So you're now in the military, going through pilot training in this very quickly post 9-11 world that we're living in. So talk to me about the evolution of the career and how you advance from there. You end up in the C-130, when you end up in combat, right? Talk us through what what those next few years are like in living in this world of going into combat zones, right? And and, and getting to work. Yeah, man. You know, I, I will start with, I graduated in May of 2001. And that summer I went on, I went on leave, had a good time. Everything was great, right? Come back and I'm getting my private pilot license in Colorado Springs. 
And I remember that morning, that fateful morning, man, I was at my then girlfriend, now my wife's apartment up in Denver, up in Aurora, just outside of Denver. She was in pharmacy school and I was at her apartment hanging out, whatever. And my mom calls me and wakes me up. And I'm like, mom, I'm sick. No, son, you need to wake up, turn on the TV. No, no, son, right now, turn on the TV. And I remember I turned on the TV right as the second plane was hitting the second tower, Brian. Like, I, I can't. There's emotion, but there's no emotion because it was an emotionless moment to go. Mm -hmm. I can't believe what I'm seeing because this isn't a movie. This is live and this is real, but yep. but there's no emotion to explain it. And, and so I looked and I said, okay, got it. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a military officer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young lieutenant. I've got to get back down to the base. So I grabbed my bag. Your first, stuff your my first bag. reaction, right? Like I got to go. I got to get back to work. Yeah. yeah. Right. So literally I, I get up, brush my teeth, whatever, get cleaned up, throw the stuff in my bag, hop on my motorcycle. And I drive from Aurora down to Colorado Springs because you need to get into this to, to the base right now because you don't know what's next. Right. And I remember, man, driving down the highway, driving down I-25 South. And there was one overpass, man. The guy just had this American flag and he was waving it, man. And I just remember just like, just that feeling mm -hmm. of like, of, of we're all in, right? Like this, somebody brought something to our, to our neighborhood, to our hood, to our soil. And it was like, no, we're, we're all in like the last four years, this is what you've been prepared for. And you didn't even know it. Right. Mm -hmm. High stress, low viz. When the opportunity presents itself, it's not about being lucky. It's about being prepared. Right. And so that was the mindset. And so shortly thereafter, I finished my, my private pilot check ride, go to pilot training, get C-130s, man. And, and so I remember finished pilot training December of 2002 and go to survive, finish off survival training. And then now I'm in C-130 training at Little Rock, Arkansas in early 2003. And what happened in early 2003? We invaded. Mm -hmm. It's go time. And so it was our instructors, they came and got us out of class and they walk us out to the hallway and and they made us watch the newsreel as to what was happening right before our eyes. Mm -hmm. And they looked at us and they said, guys, all the cool stories you heard about C-130s partying all around the world and this, that, and the third, that story is forever going to change now. Because you guys, as C-130 pilots, as C-130 aircrew, you guys are the workhorse of intertheater operations or intertheater operations. So you might want to pay attention and you might want to take this training serious because you guys are going to go head first in the harm's way ASAP, as soon as you're done training. And so, so I finished training. I got to my base, got to Pope Air Force Base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I got there in on July 7th of 2003. August 5th of 2003, I was out the door for my very first deployment. You know, and so I deployed four times in the C-130, deployed seven more times doing some other stuff and special operations. And my career, man, from 2003 to 2011 was just, it was wide open deploying and engaged in combat from Iraq, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa, other places not, never to be named. And that's what I did, man. And so I didn't know anything else, right? Like that was, mm -hmm. that was how I was raised. And that was my entry point and on-ramp into this world as an officer and as a leader and understanding what it means to lead in combat, understand what it means to support people in combat and understand what it is that we're actually fighting for and why we're fighting. So that was just, that was my, that was all I, that was all I lived for at that time, man. We've been very fortunate to have conversations with some incredible Americans that were part of that effort in a lot of different avenues. Right. And we've talked to, if you guys have been listening to this podcast, you know, for 116 episodes at this point, a lot of our conversations have been 
uh, with a lot of those proud Americans who did so much during that stretch of time, you know, folks like Lieutenant Colonel Spanky Peterson, who flies the Payfalk helicopter to rescue Marcus Luttrell. Brother, I just love the story of these six Air Force reservists that are on this Payfalk that are part of this incredible effort to go rescue one American, because that's what we do. But this crew that he talks about, his FE was in freaking Vietnam. And in 2005, he's still part of a reserve crew, right? Like, it's just absolutely amazing. But then I've also been very blessed to talk to guys like Eric Holman, um, uh, Thad Forrester, who was Mark Forrester's brother, Dan Skidmore. Those guys have connections to the combat controller world. So we've heard about what they're doing on the ground. What's that big, yeah. mighty C-130? You talked about being a workhorse, right? Take us into theater. What What's that aircraft doing? When you guys, Man, are, this, when you guys are in that right in that movement, you know. So, so when you start talking about aircraft, right, you got to look at the size. So, the largest aircraft in the in the inventory um, is the C five, right? The C five has more wasted space than the C one thirty has usable space. You know, so C5, man, I can load it up with a whole bunch of stuff and I can fly it from, from California all the way to Iraq, right? Same thing like your C-17s. Those things, they travel across the world. Mm -hmm. A C-130, man, it's going to take me a few days to get there because I can't even air refuel. But once I get in theater, we become the workhorse. So when you need to move 60 passengers, 60 Marines, 60 airmen, 60 soldiers, and two pallets of their equipment from IUD Qatar, where they kind of start a lot a, a starting point to Baghdad International. When you need to move people from inside of Iraq, from Baghdad up to Mosul, Mosul down to Talil, all these places where you need to move people from Iraq up to Afghanistan or Afghanistan back down to IUD. These these types of missions are what we in the C-130 world do, right? When you need to send somebody down to the Horn of Africa to help run operations mm -hmm. down there and move people around that, that particular area, and you need somebody that can land on any kind of surface, right? Dirt, austere airfields, whatever the case may be, airfields that are not quite as nice as what you're used to in the United States with these Class B, nice, big, plush runways, mm -hmm. you send in the C-130, and you send in the C-130 crew that is going to get the job done no matter what. Like literally sun up, sun down. It doesn't matter what time of day. It doesn't matter what the mission is called for. We get in there. We make it happen with a combat crew of six people. And it's amazing to watch how a combat C-130 crew works no matter what's happening. Man, we've I've landed and literally as we're landing and taxiing in or getting ready to taxi out, we've watched where mortars fire has come into the taxiway, hidden fuel bladders, things blowing up. You know, we've done things that literally people dream of you write about. You know, um, coming up off the runway, staying at mm -hmm. 50 feet, getting the gear and, and the flaps cleaned up and going as fast as you can. I mean, fighter guy, your dad and Elroy and those guys, they would say we're pedaling as fast as we can. Right. right? But as fast as this little C-130 can move and scoot yeah. across the ground at 50 feet, you know, we're scooting across the ground because dudes are shooting at us, man. They're they're trying to take us out of the sky. Yeah. What kind of combat capabilities that C-130 have? On? What kind of you got guns on it and stuff? No, for, for us, man, it was just, You're a, just up a in the air. You're trans Yeah. We're, we're, you know, we have some defensive capabilities, but not a significant amount, man. And so, you know, it's basically alone and alone and unafraid, brother. What, I mean, what air, really... then what aircraft is tasked with protecting you, right? Who's, who's helping you? Who else is flying around in the air when you're up there? Or maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes nobody, not, man, we, your face looks just, like you're, we're just up there. <laughs> we just roll in, bro. Get it done, man. We're like, <laughs> we're like the, 
we're like the dude who just rolls in, you know, like, you know, you ever been in the gym, Brian, where you roll in, man, there's a guy, he's got fresh Mike, you know, fresh J's on. Yeah. He's got matching. Out, he got Looks a matching good. outfit, hat, mat, like everything. Yeah. You like, dude, are you sponsored by Nike yeah. or somebody or Under Armour? That's not you. Right. Like, no, no, no. Like, you, <laughs> you know, the dude that comes in, man, like he might be in some cutoff jeans and some he flip might be in some sweatpants. Yeah. But like they right. from Walmart. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he's in there getting it in. And he's but he straps that belt on. You're like, oh, shit. Who is this Bingo. guy? You're like, he's he's ready to, he, he showed up, he's ready to work. That's the C-130, bro. Like, that's who we are. So we're not asking, like, who's who's providing cover fire? No, we're going in to get it done. We'll do our best to avoid the, the threats. And uh, sometimes you just engage the threat head on and just, you you prepare as best you can, brother, and you yeah. go in and you get it done. You you probably had a, a, a literal front uh, window view of some incredible things happen over combat zones. And that includes activity from those fighters, right? In F-15s or the A-10s. Just any moments where you just were sort of in awe at just the massive power in which we're able to operate? Um, there's There's been different moments, man. And so for me, um, it's more so understanding the lengths that people will go to save hmm. our people on the ground, right? And so, you know, for me, you, you know, I've done I've done some special operations stuff to where we've had to call in different people to, to lay down fire and to do different things. You know, I've watched gunships kind of light the place up. You know, I've watched different things happen. And so, again, for me, it's that reality that we have people that will risk it all to, to save somebody. You know, um, those combat controllers, man, like those dudes... I'll buy them a beer any day, mm. any day, anytime, anywhere in the world, brother. Pararescuemen, PJs, man, like those guys, what they do, right? The training that they put in, the grueling hours of training that they put in to make sure that if something ever happens to me, I know that there's at least one guy who's going to get the call. One guy, one guy's going to get the call and they're coming to find me. They're coming to pull me out, dead or alive, right? So for me, that's what I'm in awe of, right? The firepower is great. Don't get me wrong. When you see a gunship light off, when you see a, a, a H-60 gunship go Winchester and light some stuff up, man, when you see these low birds light stuff up, when you see the F-16s come in for for you know for a low pass, all these things, dude, they are like they get you excited, right? Gets all tingly inside. But it's for me, Brian, it's not the it's not the firepower. It's the willpower. Mm. It's that person, brother, that's in the seat. It's that person who hops out of that plane. It's that person who hops out of that helicopter. It's that person who's coming to save my life, going in there to save the lives of my friends, going to save the lives of my peers, going to save the lives of fellow Americans and fellow people, people that are serving alongside of us in combat, our NATO partners, right? The other partners that we might go to war with. It's those people. Again, it's not the firepower. It's the willpower, bro. That's what gets me excited. And that's what humbles me and just makes me grateful for the people that I continue to serve with, that I've had the opportunity and the pleasure and the honor to serve with. That, like that, I can't even, it's, it's hard to even put into any more words because it's so powerful when you witness that firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I just go back to, it's like, you know, you tell the stories. I just feel so fortunate to be able to sit in this seat and deliver some of those for you guys, right? For you listening at yeah. home to remind you that despite our differences, despite what you might see on whatever kind of cable news you're watching, maybe hopefully you're not anymore. There is still <laughs> so much good. And it is the American spirit in which people will 
pile on to an aircraft or a Chinook helicopter or a C-130 to go get one person. Because like in Matthew 18, it talks about we will leave one, we'll leave the 99 to go get the one, right? That's yes. what this is about. That's why we've started this platform here. It's not because of me. It's because of you guys, right? It's because of the stories yeah, I mean, there, right? You know, like you said, man, pick up the six. It's, it's, I know that there's always somebody who has my six, Brian. I know that there's somebody who's always leading with the level of integrity, no matter what. I, I know that there are people out there that, they train for that moment. They hope, they pray, they wish that that moment never comes because that means something bad has happened. But I know that those people are sitting there in the shadows and they've got my six. I know that no matter what, they're coming to, to, to save me, to rescue me. They're going to come through on their promise to, like you said, leave the 99 for the one, to never leave a man behind. Man, that's, when you understand yep. that and you get to actually witness that firsthand, brother, man, that's beyond humbling. You are, I hate saying the words, you know, you're one of the busiest guys I know. I've been trying to change that to say you're one of the most engaged, right? Because busy <laughs> sounds like, oh, it's a burden. I'm busy. I'm busy. You're engaged, right? You got a lot going on. Uh, so tell everybody, man, if they want to find you, right? If they want some more of this, tell them where you're at, where they can find you. I know you do a lot of public speaking. You got the book. So just, just give us an info dump. Yeah, man. It's, it, I, and I appreciate that. And, I, and I'm going to use that language now for going forward too, Brian. I'm, I'm very engaged, right? So I told you guys I'm an airline pilot. I'm still serving as a military uh, officer uh, and pilot. And then I have my business where I speak. My, my brand is called No Fail Trust. So you can find me at uh, nofailtrust.com. You can email me, Jason, at nofailtrust.com. And then also, if you want to text me, you can text me at 719-203-7257. Boom, the he, other just thing his, that he just threw his text number out at you. <laughs> Hey That's man, hey, any, hey, I, I'm real, brother. If somebody yep. wants to get a hold of me, I'll have a conversation all day. If I have a few minutes, brother, on the treadmill, yep. driving somewhere, I'm I'm all about that because you never know when you can save someone's life, right? That's right. Um, and then the other thing that I've got going on, Brian, is I've, I've done some TV work. And so I'll have another TV show on the History Channel. It'll be coming out in November. So super excited about that. But again, oh, man, nice. the, we got to come back stuff, in November and talk about it once it's out. Yeah, man, I, I'd love to do that, man. But if people want to get a hold of me, nofailtrust.com. Um, you know, it's all about uh, trusted training, trusted process, trusted people, and trust like your life and your business depends on it. Incredible. Jason Harris, it's an amazing story, man. You think about just um, opportunity, but still having a grit through, right? Yes. Like nothing is given. I think one of the takeaways from our conversation is you kind of go back to the fact that the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. Hey, it's, it's, it and in flying world, we say, I'd rather be lucky than good any day, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been great to talk to you. We got to do this again. Let's catch up in November, man. Once the new show's out, we can talk a little bit more about that. I look forward to it, Brian. Thank you so much, man. And uh, best to you and best to all your listeners, man. Make sure to cover everybody's six and make sure you got somebody, the right people covering your six. I can promise you that we always will. He's Jason Harris. My name is Brian Jodas. And that's been this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>